Welcome to the Kings Insider Podcast on NBC Sports California, brought to you by Wendy's. I am James Ham, and we have a very different podcast today. Uh, I'm going to play moderator, a little different role for myself, but I'm surrounded by two gentlemen that I respect a ton. Uh, I consider both friends and colleagues, um, and we're going to have uh, sometimes an uncomfortable but an honest discussion about sort of the events uh, surrounding what's happened in Sacramento, the events of Thursday night where the Sacramento Kings game um, went a little sideways. It went a little sideways, to say the least. So first of all, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to intro both of our guests. Uh, joining me, of course, is Doug Christie, who joins me on every podcast. Yes, sir. Uh, and he's going to not be a question guy today. He's just going to be part of the discussion. And also, Mr. Garrett Temple. Garrett, how are you? I'm doing well, James. I appreciate y'all letting me join you today. Well, I, I think, you know, we need to have honest discussions. I mean, I think that's something that you've been asking for. Um, let's just walk through the events of Thursday evening. For those who don't know, uh, Sacramento Kings game was slightly interrupted uh, by a protest outside. A young gentleman, Stefan Clark, was shot and killed by police. Uh, and I don't know, the, the details of everything are still coming out, but once helicopter footage and, and body cam footage came out, uh, protests were scheduled, and uh, you know, basically, it was a peaceful protest outside of Golden One, but it really put a weird spin on the night because only 2,500 fans made it into the building before the protesters basically barred the doors. Uh, Garrett, why don't you walk me through what it was like for you to be there that night and to be inside? You know, you weren't in uniform because you're injured, but to be there and the feel of being in a building that's normally full, but you know something else is going on outside. Yeah, it was a very interesting night, to say the least, uh, one I will probably never forget. Um, it was a different feel. We found out as players around uh, about 45 minutes before the tip-off that the protesters um, had basically formed, like you said, a, bar- a human barricade, and, and then Golden One the security decided to shut the doors and uh, not let anybody else in. Um and then at that point, I think around 30 minutes on the clock, we found out that it was going to be a delay. And uh, we were honestly wondering if the game was going to go on uh, because obviously the protest was about something that has plagued our uh, community in America for uh, quite some time now. And it, uh, you know, it was understandable um, from, from my point of view at least and uh, a lot of my teammates' points of views. So – um, from what I was told, I think, um, you know, there was a call with Adam Silver and, um, you know, it was, it was said that the game was going to go on. And when I walked on the court, like you said, to see 2000 people in Golden One Center, which is, you know, that's the thing I always say about these fans here in Sacramento, best fans in the world who are always coming to pack a game. Even if, even if we were going to play the Atlanta Hawks who were, uh, you know, had a worse record than we did. Um, usually it still would have been at least 16,000, 17,000 fans there to see it like that. It kind of had a weird vibe to it, kind of like a, a fan day vibe, um, like a scrimmage. And uh, a couple of players felt like it, 
you know, it just didn't feel, the, obviously it didn't feel the same. A couple of my teammates voiced that to me, Costa, Vince, um, you know, our trainer. It was uh, interesting to say the least. Yeah, I think for me, like sitting up on stage, up on the set, Doug and I had an interesting perspective. Again, I've been to Kings games for the last eight years. It's to see the building completely cleared out uh, was bizarre for them to skip player intros, skip the national anthem, and just tip the ball off. It really almost felt like a high school game. Uh, really had a strange feel. But Doug, for you, we were in a in a slightly different situation. We were up on set with Jim Cosmore. Uh, and we weren't fully informed on what was happening. We, we didn't get, like, the heads up early. But all of a sudden, no fans behind us. Mm-hmm. The windows behind us are nothing but protesters. Yeah. Uh, it was a different, almost surreal feeling for me. Uh, what, what was your sort of view from where we were sitting? Um, definitely different because normally, like Garrett said, this is it's packed. It doesn't matter if, if the Kings are good, if the Kings are bad, the, the fans come up in here. Uh, but the fact that it was peaceful, I think, was the the calming force. I seen King's staffers, King's management trying to figure out, okay, where are we going to go with this? What are we going to do? How are we going to do it? The call was made, and then they decided not to let anybody else in. So from that standpoint, I, I felt safe. I was totally comfortable. More than anything, when I look down, being the next player, I'm trying to figure out, like, what are they feeling? What's going on with their mindset? Because sometimes it can get hard to get up for a game like that. I mean, sometimes it's hard to get up for a game when you go in and there's people there, but there ain't nobody there. So to watch them and then once they, it looked like, okay, they they got their thing together. I kind of was going through business as usual until I, I said to my, you know, my people's outside. Mm-hmm. I'm in here with my people at the same time. W- what can I do to try to make this situation maybe ease out and make it better? Because I, I, I love the Kings, but you know when I go home, I have a Stephon Clark. My little man is, is right there, and I want to make sure that every day he comes home to me so a conversation has to be had. From that standpoint, I tried to do what I could do. Okay. The the events of the game play out the way they play out. I mean, again, it doesn't really matter. The Atlanta Hawks aren't playing for anything. Um, they kind of showed that on the court. Um, and maybe they're used to playing in front of 2,000 fans in Atlanta. That happens sometimes <laughs> there. <is> true. Um, <laughs> but the events kind of play out. And then Vivek Ranadive takes center stage. And Garrett... I know you probably had discussions before the actual end of the game with Vivek about what was, what he was going to say, how this was going to play out, maybe a stance that he might take. Um, why don't you walk us through that? Because for me, uh, I've covered Vivek since he bought the team. Um, you know, owners make mistakes. They they have great sides. They have bad sides. You know, uh, Vivek hasn't had his footing in Sacramento that well over the course of his tenure here. But it was watching him on on center court, it was a defining moment not just for an owner because I think that's the moment he really became an owner. But I also think it's a moment where he became a leader in a community, which I didn't know was going to happen for him. And to me, it was it was pretty inspiring. I mean, whether I agreed with his politics or not, that's a whole other question, and we'll get to that later. But just for you to be there and watch Vivek take that stand and uh, and also take the advice and listen and take the counsel of his players. Walk us through that that whole situation. Yeah, so uh, maybe even right before the game or 
um, definitely at halftime, the you know Galen Duncan and uh, Brandon, uh, our front office guy Brandon Williams had had a few discussions with myself and Vince Carter about if we wanted to say something and uh, or if not, uh, who we think should say something and things of that nature and what should be said. And then towards the end of, end of the game, um, there was a little dialogue between me and uh, those guys about what um, Vivek was going to say and um, if the players were willing to stand behind him if he said these things. And um, and it came to a point where we we you know understood what he was going to say and and we believed believed in what he was going to say and we wanted to be a part of that. And uh, and then we got the rookies and stuff like that to just come along, come come on up. Uh, but the coaches being there as well, um, I think, like you said, it was big for Vivek to do what he did. Um, you know, I think he, he understands uh, being a minority in this country. He understands what comes with that. Uh, he understands the platform that the Kings have, not only in Sacramento, but being one of the 30 teams in the NBA. And for him to step up after a game, um, after a game where he – where 15,000 fans didn't show up in his arena where he lost concessions, lost, you know, money from tickets. Um, that was really big for him to step up and say what he said uh, about the peaceful protest outside. Um, and like you said, it was, it, was, it was definitely a defining moment. And, um, you know, he gained a lot of respect from a lot of people by what he said, by what he said that night. Doug, I, I just I'd like you to piggyback on what Garrett said. What was sort of your feeling about what Vivek said? Because again, he could have chosen a couple of different routes here. He easily could have backed the police. Uh, he could have just avoided that subject completely. But instead, he actually jumped two feet in and, and made a, a political statement, which again I was surprised by. But sort of, what was your your view? You know, I, I'm watching it because we're getting ready to go on. So I'm I'm watching it on the monitor. I can hear it, but I can kind of see him at the same time. And when he said it, I I I, I smiled inside because I, I'm thinking that the more that people of influence, uh, him being a minority, but also. Uh, like yourself, Ham, you're a white male in America. There's a lot of, when, once that starts happening, that's going to signify the change. And for him to step out like that, I just, I, I wanted to stand up and say, man, thank you so much because those are the things that are needed because he is an influencer. He has power. And for him to grab the mic and speak like that, it was beautiful. And he didn't, he didn't put anybody in a category. He, he said everybody. Mm-hmm. And that was, it was a powerful statement. Right. Yeah, I, I think, you know, part of the, the angst of, of doing a, a sit-down like this is I am the white guy at the table. I mean, it, it's, I mean, let's just be honest. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, I thought about this long and hard. I even had discussions with Doug before. You know, I have a degree in U.S. history, in modern U.S. history from UC Davis. Uh, I've studied it. Um, I know all of the dates. I know all of the events leading up to civil rights movements, leading up to, you know, Rosa Parks and Emmett Till and I mean I I've done all the research but at the same time I've also done all the research about Vietnam and I've studied and I've you know I've got to know this subject matter deeply but I've never been in a jungle having people shot at me seeing my friends get killed having my feet riding off I've never been in your shoes and I think one of the the questions that I have is being a black man in America I mean, it means something different to everybody. Uh, like how, I, I don't, 
how else to ask it? Like, what does it feel like for you to be a black man in America and know that you're viewed differently, or at least you feel like you're viewed differently uh, from the outside? Oh, that's a it's an interesting question. Um, being a black man in America and growing up in Louisiana, and my father being who he was and what he did going through in terms of being the black, first black basketball player at Louisiana State University, going to school with David Duke, being in arguments with David Duke, who was the former um, Grand Wizard of the KKK, who actually won a Senate seat in Louisiana. Um, you know, coming from that household and, 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 you know, being taught the things that he taught me about American society and, and, and race. Um, I come from, from a different background, an affluent family, so I was never, I never wanted for anything, but a lot of my friends that I grew up playing basketball with were not that at all. So I saw both sides and I understood how to empathize. Um, but I have been racially profiled. I have been pulled over by the cops. And, and when a cop gets behind me, I'm a guy that, you know, n not tenses up, but okay, I gotta try to do everything correctly right now. Uh, and that's something that I've talked to a lot of my white friends about and colleagues that do not have to go through that. Um, and when I see comments, uh, about different things, whether it be on Facebook or Instagram or social, any social media platform, it, it, res it, it reminds me that a lot of people don't uh, just don't understand. And I think the biggest thing is that it's normal not to understand because you're not in that situation if you're not a black man. But the defining factor is if you, un if you know that you can't understand and you don't even try to understand, you just mm -hmm. try to yeah. support and sympathize. The, the the thing that gets me is when you just uh, disregard the feelings of African Americans uh, because you are putting your own viewpoint on it, um, not understanding that you have no idea, no clue what it feels like to be that in America. And like you said, you can never understand what it is to be black, but I think a lot of people, even though they Un they hear that they don't apply it when they're when they're thinking about situations like this. You know, Doug, you and I have had this discussion. Uh, you and Dougie were pulled over one time by a police officer. Yeah, and you had to like logically walk your son through what you do in this situation. Mm. Why, why don't you mm. take us through that? Because again, like I can drive around Sacramento for six months without tags on my car and no one says anything to me. Wow. I, I can go 85 <laughs> wow. uh, down the freeway and no one says anything to me. Wow. I mean, I might get a ticket, but when I get pulled over, I feel like, oh man, I just got caught. Right. I don't feel like, oh man, I don't know what's gonna happen next. Right. And so, Doug. You know, it, it's, a, it's a tough one because I, I come from an environment where when I, Police come. I always I'm on guard. Like Garrett says, it's it's not a automatically. It's just it's a knee jerk reaction. And even when I had uh, played in the NBA and different, it just would always it it always be that way because of the environment. So once I got to Pepperdine, I got pulled over with uh, one of my teachers, and he was he was um, from South Central LA. And as soon as we got pulled over, it was a sheriff, and he said. Put both your hands on the steering wheel. Put both your hands on the dashboard. Blah blah blah. Before the police was coming up, and I'm thinking, well, well okay. So boom, immediately I did that. So I, I took that, and in that particular time with my son, we were on 80, and we get pulled over, and the cop was he, he was he was pretty tough, 
And my son really started panicking, and I had never been around him when he panicked. You know, I, I, I've never seen it because I've never had him in a situation where he really needed to panic, I guess. And there there had been a shooting uh, of, a, of a young black. It, was, it really had started amping up. Mm-hmm. So me and him are always having these conversations. So when he pulled us over, I rolled all the windows down, sunroof, back, everything, hands on the thing. And the cop starts talking, but we're right beside the freeway, so I can't hear him. And he was saying something, I guess, about my hand, and he kind of unclicks his gun, and my son's looking in the the side mirror, and he's just almost about to start moving, and I'm thinking to myself, don't move. Don't move. Do do not move. But he can't control himself because he's only 16 years old. He doesn't know. He's never been in this type of situation. So finally I got the dude calm down. I give him him my driver's license. But when he comes back, he's totally cool, whether he knew I was then or whatever it was. But it it was an object lesson for my son that when we pulled away, that conversation was so deep because I explained, I said, did you see when he tapped? The, the release off of his gun and he had his hand on his gun I said two seconds later we could both not be here anymore it's that serious and you have to take it so for you Ham you know I, I it, it's hard for me to explain I, I have friends grew up with them because my dad was in a white neighborhood my mom's white but we lived in the hood which is a mix up <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a whole, whole other that's, podcast, that's a whole other podcast <laughs> of a of a mix up. So I have I had a lot of friends when I was with my father, Ham, that were like you and we would have you know, I watched them and they, they have no regard. And I'm totally like, No way, don't, don't and they're like, Come on, man, you know, just you're tripping and I'm like, nah, because 'cause I'm from Seattle and we're in a different area. So it was it was bad, but it was good because it became real to him and hopefully he never gets in those situations and he was kind of in one and it gave me the leverage to have that conversation even deeper. All right, Gary, you said something after the game. Uh, us not playing basketball isn't going to change the fact that police unfortunately view black and brown men as a threat. How do we bridge this gap? Because I'm not going to disagree with you uh, on this and I mean clearly there's been enough evidence in these situations that a lot of times African-American men are viewed as a threat, but uh, how do we, what's secure here? Because I mean, that's the problem, right? We, we understand the, the symptoms. We, we need to figure out what the, the cure is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the thing is, when I said that, I should, I should have said some police, but now that I think about it, and I think we had this conversation maybe yesterday or the day before, Jay Ham. Uh, I'm trying not to be too long-winded here, but I think people need to understand. I personally don't believe the cop that shot Stefan Clark. I don't know him, but I, I would surmise that he's not a racist individual. I didn't. I don't think he shot him because he was black. Agreed. Because he doesn't like black people, uh, and I think that goes for a lot of the situations. I think it's more so of a the stereotype and a biased mindset that's created through uh, media, through society, and that has been created. You're the U.S. history major for the last 400 years. What has been pushed out through media outlets and what has been taught to people uh, has brainwashed them to believe a certain way. 
And that's all humans. That's why I didn't say all white cops believe it. Cops and people in general have this certain mindset. If you if you see an old lady walking down the street, you're going to think you're you're going to have a bias that she's old, she's brittle, she's not going to hurt a fly. If you see a black man walking down the street with a hoodie in a in a predominantly black neighborhood, more times than not, you're going to think he's up to something or he, this is this is what he's going to do. This is why Trayvon Martin was chased when he was in a neighborhood that he quote unquote shouldn't have been in. Um and I think that has more to do with it than, like I said, the racism. Now, I think it stemmed from racism, but what people are thinking now is more of a stereotype and a bias. And I don't know how to change that. I don't know if you can change that. Uh, I think the way to change it is to is how you teach your kids, because at age 30, I think a tra traumatic event has to happen for somebody's mind to change like that. But I think the one thing that can keep cops from pulling the trigger so quickly is having, um, you know, a, a consequence, having, uh, having them, um, having some accountability for doing that. So they think twice about pulling the trigger just because they're scared and they think somebody has a gun. Uh, because maybe if I shoot him and he doesn't have a gun, he may, I may, I may go to jail for five, 10 years because I made a mistake, it's a, it's a mistake, but that mistake cost somebody their life. And I, I think the main thing is that mistake cost somebody their life and whether he was running away from the cops or, or whatnot, whatever, whether he was a criminal or whatnot, whatever he did did not carry a death sentence. And I think that's the biggest thing when I Absolutely. see comments on my social media where if you comply, you, but non-compliance does not equal death sentence. And no. I think that's the main thing we need to get across. And that's what makes me and Doug as black men upset Yeah. Because you see the Parkland shooter, you see the shooter in um, in, in Aurora, Colorado. Mm -hmm. You see different people, different white men, killing multiple people and getting arrested and, and going to Burger King or getting arrested by one cop pinning him down and arresting him. Whereas this person doesn't have a gun. You think he has a gun, and he gets shot at twenty times. Uh, the, the difference it. it the only thing is the environment, and you see that this person is a black guy in this black neighborhood. So I don't know if there's a cure for the mindset of people, but I think one cure for trying to – the quick trigger finger is consequences. Okay, so, like, uh, again – He did uh, say Burger King. It's difficult. He did say Burger King. Okay. I, I mean, I, I know the story, and, and, and again – White males are the predominantly the mass shooters. I mean, we've seen that time and time again, uh, whether they're mentally deranged or they're just straight up, you know, having an issue and, and go and, and do these things. Um, and I, I agree 100%. Um, but I, too, get hit on social media nonstop. Uh, and my social media reads the same way that what you just said. All like, right. he had this individual had multiple opportunities to change the course of the evening himself. Uh, so playing devil's advocate, like, how do we get both sides to understand that that this is a situation that should have it had so many moments where things could have gone a different direction and could have changed the outcome, and whether someone was arrested or someone was cleared of charge or uh, whatever, the court process wasn't allowed to take place because the incident escalated. Um, how do we get both sides to look at this and say, okay, uh, I get it. I can't be as quick to pull the trigger, but on the other side, I can't be as quick 
to run around the corner and and hide somewhere and or or you know in a dark area i mean the whole situation played out i've watched the body cam footage i've watched the helicopter footage but how do you how do you sort of rectify both sides here because if the if he did have a gun hypothetical it's possible that two officers could have gone home in body bags as opposed to him so how do we how do we marry these two sides how do we get both sides to sit down and understand that each other you're not inherently uh, ready to attack each other you you don't need this to escalate every single time that's a that's a tough question right there ham because we have to understand and, and i'm not uh talking about mr clark in this instance i'm just talking about criminals period criminals aren't going to sit down and discuss because that's the nature of criminality or if I just made up a word in in and of itself is trying to get away with something so that's where the onus is on the police right to be you have a they have the tough one besides probably uh armed forces they got the toughest job no because question. every day they are putting their lives on the line and I have I had the utmost respect for police because of so, oh man, it could go all could types go, of different yeah. different places. So, yeah. as a as a kid, I didn't have this view of the police. I had a different view of the police, and it was because of where I grew up and the things that I saw. And every time they came around, it was negative. But my view changed, and my view started to change because of conversations. And in Seattle, Washington, what they did was the Seattle Supersonics were really good then. So they gave all the policemen cards. But to get the cards, you had to go and you had to have a conversation with the police officer. So it began a conversation. How are you doing, sir? You know, I'm looking for that Gus Williams card. You got that card? And that began for me not to be scared of the police and for me to have a conversation, which took me to a paramount point in my life because my mom almost died. She had tuberculosis, and they took her to the hospital and I was left there and I got home somehow, I can't remember. So I wanted to see my mom and I had no way to go there. So through those cards and my conversations with the police, mm-hmm. I built enough, e- enough equity to say, I'm gonna call the police because they'll take me there. And I called 911 and they came in this squad car and he didn't put me in the back, he put me in the front, he took me to see my mom. And that was my bridge mentally to begin. You know what? It's it's different than I think. Right. And I say all that, Ham, to say the only thing that I that I have for you is is conversation. We we have to begin to have the conversation. Police have to have a. It has to get deeper in training and different things. And I have no idea how they train because I'm sure they come to the game and be like, man, you really need to work on that jump shot. Right. I agree with you. <laughs> I do. Exactly. So. That, to, to not be too long-winded, that's where I think. I personally think the training in different things has to escalate to a martial artist, black belt type of level to where they just are superior. And they already are. But that particular situation didn't particularly look I, that I, way. I agree with Doug in that. I agree with you have to begin to come together in terms of have a relationship with the community that – community that you're policing yes um i didn't go through this but i remember older guys telling me situations where police used to drive around you know on the beat and talk to talk to the yeah people in the community mm-hmm. and they would know oh that's joe that's joe the policeman 
uh, or that's Harry. And the policemen knew the community. And when they wanted something, when they wanted, when something was going on in the community, they could go to somebody and ask, and they could actually get some information instead of, I'm not talking to you, you the police, mm-hmm. how it is now. So I think you have to, you have to have a communication, you have to build a relationship in that community so you can understand. Maybe it would have been, hey, hey, Steph, stop. Or hey, Zoe, they may have known his, his nickname. Yeah. Zoe, mm-hmm. stop. You know, it may have been a different situation, but I think Doug is right. The onus is on the police because whether somebody's doing, if somebody's doing something wrong, I don't care if you're a six-year-old stealing candy, you're not gonna talk to mom about if I steal candy, this is what I'm going to do. This is I'm going to try to get away with it. I'm going to run away. I'm not yeah. going to stop and um, be easily apprehended. I mean, that's just the way a criminals criminal are thing, yeah. in general. And uh, so, and then if you're a black man in the hood and two people are running after you that don't identify themselves as cops, Gone. more times than not, you're going to run Absolutely. anyway. Yeah. I yeah. mean, uh, you're running around the house, your house, around the corner to your backyard to to the back door. I mean, at the end of the day, that's that's pretty normal human behavior. Yes. Yeah, I mean, watching the footage, it's tough because, uh, again, I, I went on vacation a couple of years ago with a friend who's a Placer County Sheriff. And while we're on vacation together, there's an officer-involved shooting here in Sacramento where a, a, a gentleman shot an officer here in Sac and then drove up towards where I live uh, and he ended up killing another officer. And I just happened to be on vacation with somebody who had spent eight years as a partner with somebody who was just shot in an officer-involved shooting. Uh, a police officer doing his job, trying to protect and serve, was, you know, took a bullet th- uh, to the side of his vest and died. Mm-hmm. Um, two people that day died. Uh, and so it's really tough. I, I mean, I can see both sides of the envelope here where, uh, you know, you need to— exercise more caution maybe we uh, you mentioned maybe they use uh non-lethal mm-hmm. uh, ways to stop uh people maybe that that's something we have to go to but at the end of the day i think most police officers will tell you that you don't bring a knife to a gunfight absolutely and right it, and if your life if you're fearing for your life in these situations you're fearing for your partner's life um you know i i, I know this there's no way that these officers feel good about what happened. Mm-hmm. It's no way that they're sitting at home having a beer, celebrating what just happened. This is a hard thing for everybody involved. So I think as a community, we need to figure out how, like I, I love what you said about, you know, getting cards from police officers. And mm-hmm. I've seen, you know, cousins uh, when he was here reached out and had these forums where, you know, they play, they acted out, like how... Yeah, that was last know. year. We had a, a forum, a town hall, me yeah. and Matt Barnes. About and Rudy was there. And, yeah. And you guys talked about what a police officer is seeing when he's walking up to a car. So we need to have these conversations. And, you know, again, this is sort of the start uh, here in Sacramento. Again, a reset button where we need to start having these conversations again. Um, but you know, these incidents are going to happen. I mean, unfortunately it's, it's sort of the world we're in right now. Um, but I guess I want to talk to you guys about that night one more time and, uh, following the events, the game, everything else, you get done with the set. Um, you reach out to Doug, you reach out to the guy who's, who's holding the, the situation out who started the situation outside the mm-hmm. uh, the leader of the the rally mm-hmm. the protesters um, what was your intent and sort of 
how is that the olive branch that you extend? Because look, I've walked around this arena with you. I've walked in other places with you. I've had to take pictures of you and someone else about 800 million times. Mm -hmm. You're one of the more recognizable faces here. Mm -hmm. You can go into a community and you can help with change. And I I feel like that night, that's something that you tried to do. Um, You you know, I mean, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, because I I probably know people that I can't even talk about on here. That's the nature of where we come from. It's just how it is, whether it's drug dealers, a lot of different people, whether it be in my family, a lot of different stuff. And I was thinking as I'm sitting there and I keep turning around looking, I'm like, it's a human wall behind me. And these guys are playing. And I'm looking over there and I'm seeing the King's staffers and, and they kind of, you know, they got a hand on it because they locked the door. But how do you handle the situation? And I was thinking of who I knew and I thought to myself, I talk to Damian Barling all the time. We, we talk about this stuff. And so I hit him immediately. I'm like, D, you here? He said, no, I'm not there. Uh, I said, you know anybody in Black Lives Matter? He was like, yeah, I know somebody. So he reached out to them. He said, I'll hit you back. Then he said, I'm looking at my map. It looks real tough to get down there, but I know some back streets. I can make it. Can you make sure I get me in? So I went and talked to Dave, who was the head of security, and said, I might have something for you. Will you guys be willing to have a conversation? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, this guy's going to come down. Can you get him in? Damon hit me and said, I'm outside, but hold on because I'm about to deal with somebody. And then he talked to the guy. that He dispersed everybody. And then they, they came in, and that's when I was looking at uh, Garrett on the bench because I just wanted to make sure that they got together. When I leave, now it don't go, you know, I've seen that happen too where it goes funky, and then it's like, well, you said, but to the King's credit, I, I give them full mm-hmm. from Matina to um, Joel, John Reinhardt, obviously Vivek, Dave, Sean, all the staff. They were so solid, man. They 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 brought them in, um, were able to have a conversation, and then just by happen chance, when when I left the set and I'm going down, Garrett, um, Vince, Damian, and the man, they were all having a conversation. So then we stayed probably an extra 30, 45 minutes and just talking about things, all this stuff that we're talking about. So, you know. I, I don't. I, I don't. I'm not looking for credit. What I'm looking for is a solution. And I just tried to. Who can I do? And what can I do? Kind of like when I played. It's just what. Where's it? I want to win. And that's that for me. I thought that was to be a win to to disperse the people without anyone getting hurt, but also at the same time have a conversation so that we can build. Garrett. Walk us through what it was like being on that the other end of that conversation because you you had conversations with the the leaders of the of the protest, um, but you also saw the reaction of the people that you work for and your teammates that were there with you. And just kind of walk us through that event. Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, Doug caught my eye, um, and I saw Damien. I do a you know I do radio interview with mm-hmm. him every week, and um, and then I saw Barry who was uh, with them, and Doug was pointing to him and telling me, doing sign language, telling me that he's the guy that, you know, uh, let uh, let all the protesters know that we've done our job here, we're good, Uh, we we got what we wanted accomplished, and he explained to me that he's the guy that got everything done. And then, um, then, you know, uh, 
after we went in there, waited for the media, waited for you guys to come in. Uh, to I had a feeling y'all would want to ask me some questions. Of course, because you're a stand-up then, guy who takes the questions. And then, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, when, I, like you said, uh, I made sure I wanted to see. So I told Damien to make sure they waited after because I wanted to talk to him and, and Barry and just get their point of view. And and uh, Vince came out a little later, and we were just talking about different things, um, like you said, about different situations. And and uh, he was happy to be in there. He was happy to meet me. Happy to meet Vince Carter. You know, it wasn't. That's the thing. A lot of the young guys early on were like, why are they protesting the basketball game? And we, myself and Vince, we were explaining it. And Pete, our trainer, were explaining. They're not protesting the game. They're protesting the situation and saying that it cannot be business as usual. We can't mm -hmm. just allow life to go on as if nothing traumatic has happened, uh, as if this is, ha this is normal because this isn't normal behavior in society. And I think finally they started to understand that. Uh, it's like asking somebody, Kaepernick, why are you protesting the flag? He's not protesting the flag. He's protesting, you know, what's going on. Now, he did it during that time because that's when people will realize it. If you protest the Sacramento Kings game in Sacramento, mm -hmm. people are going to realize what's going on, you know. Um, so I think that's the thing that we – taught a couple of the young guys that were asking that and then just building for the next 30 minutes after the game like Doug said was just great um, and uh, I'm trying to trying to get in touch with the family to try to help out uh, in a couple of ways that I can and um, like you said we're going to try to find a solution. All right well I, I think we've got to end this discussion today but I think the discussion needs to keep going um, you know I, I hope that you know you've, you guys both uh, you seem really in empowered by this uh and really it's something that you're passionate about love to see you guys do town hall meetings like what we saw uh last year i thought that that was really informative and really helpful for the youth of sacramento uh but also i think you know it has to be both sides both sides have to understand the give and take that's involved here um i'd love to be involved with you guys doing this stuff uh thanks so much for for dropping by and again a little bit different Doug answering questions as opposed to uh, as opposed to sitting here riffing with me. But Garrett, uh, do you have any final thoughts or anything? No final thoughts. I mean, well, just to uh, piggyback on what Doug said, we have to find a solution. And um, you know, uh, I think it's imperative on both sides to open up. But um, I think it's going to be a tough road. But we got to continue it. We can't stop after a couple of months and and move to another. You know, another avenue, another thing that we're talking another about. Another subject, yeah. Another subject. We have to continue to strive to find a solution uh, on, on what we're going, on what's going on here now. Doug, communicate. It's probably the greatest attribute of human beings, and we need to do it at a really high level instead of at these really low base levels. One hundred and forty character level. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So. Sacramento Kings are going to take on the Boston Celtics on Sunday. Uh, you guys will be wearing shirts. I guess that will be the last thing we talk about. Just give us a, a two-second bit on what you guys are, are wearing and what your intentions are here. Both you and the Boston Celtics are both taking part. I know Brad Stevens was very interested, and, and his team was very interested in, in being part of what you guys are doing today. But what is it that, uh, as a group that you guys are planning? Yeah, so we're wearing shirts that – on the front, they say accountability, and we are one. And on the back, hashtag Stephon Clark. 
uh, who was the victim of the shooting on Sunday night. Um, you know, the accountability piece came up because, uh, as we stated earlier, um, you know, uh, for these things to change, maybe the accountability piece needs to happen more often in terms of the cops, but also, you know, different different sides. Both sides have accountability in situations, um, as you said. So um, this is something that we think can can go on and not just be about this situation in a lot of different situations. Um, you know, the March, for, the March for Lives or whatever, that, you know, mm -hmm. different people need to be held accountable for the, the, uh, the things that they have in, in terms of um, gun ownership or, or, or gun violence or the things that uh, are going on throughout the Senate in, in terms of trying to have different gun laws. So, uh, and obviously Stephon Clark, we wanted to make sure people remember his name. And I think Boston is going to go and do their own thing when they go back home as well. Like you said, Brad Stevens was very adamant about trying mm -hmm. to be involved in support. And, uh, and I, obviously, I think we have a little something to share at halftime, too, a little PSA that would be very, very powerful. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Kings Insider podcast on NBC Sports. Uh, thank you so much, Garrett Temple. Thank you so much, Doug Christie, for, for joining for sure. me. Uh, good discussion, and we'll keep this discussion going. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Kings Insider Podcast, brought to you by Wendy's. If you haven't already, please visit Apple Podcasts or Google Play to subscribe. If you like our podcast, give us a rating and a review. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at NBCS Authentic. We'll be back next week with another great guest. Thanks for tuning in, Kings fans. We'll see you very soon. <laughs>